On this episode of Building Biotechs, we're talking about poop. Mm-hmm. Stephanie Culler, co-founder and CEO of Persephone Biosciences, just educated us on all things poop. It is so fascinating what they're doing. And she, first of all, gives a great overview of the company, but she has a couple of different great partnerships and it was just such a fun conversation and I learned so much. Welcome to Building Biotechs, a podcast by Recruitomics Consulting. We've helped over 75 biotech, life science, and venture capital firms strategize, hire, and retain thousands of employees to scale companies that bring life-saving drugs to patients. We speak with those at the forefront of growing biotechs to learn their tactics on building these companies from the ground floor to the C-suite. We're your host, Karina and Allison. Thank you so much for joining us, Stephanie. It's such a pleasure. Uh, we always ask our guests the same question to start. So we love to hear about your career path. What did you want to be when you were seven? What are you now? And how did you get there? Um, great question. So um, when I was growing up, um, I wanted to actually be a concert violinist um, and, and, and studied very rigorously and played violin and taking um, lessons with multiple teachers, even going to um, Interlochen um, Academy um, over a summer. And it was kind of through that journey that I, I realized, actually, that I didn't want to become a violinist. Um, I had started maybe a little bit late um, when I was in elementary school, whereas everybody who was going to Juilliard started when they were three years old. So I couldn't make up for that lost time. Um, and, and I also felt that um, given my interest in, in high school and even, even before then, um, elementary school in science, in math, um, that I, I knew I wanted to become a scientist. And I think the turning point for me really was, and kind of that transition, was when I lost both of my grandmothers to cancer um, when I was a young teenager. And for me, um, you know, I, I promised them I would do something about cancer, but as, obviously as a young teenager, you don't really know what that means. But uh, what that led me to do was actually become a, a scientist. And um, my PhD work at Caltech uh, really focused in some early applications of synthetic biology for gene therapy in in cancer. So, I mean, obviously today now an entrepreneur, so um, things have, have have changed quite a bit. It's really interesting that you say that everyone has started at three and you were late to the game because you started in elementary school. That is just, <laughs> that blows my mind. But you do hear that story about these mus musical prodigies. It's like, they, could, they couldn't even walk, but they were playing the exactly. piano or the violin. Yeah. And, and they were practicing 10 hours a day. And I knew that just wasn't kind of, oh. for some people, that's what they want to do. But for me, I, my passion just wasn't there. Yeah. How did you get exposed to science and math so young? Because that's also really unique. It's yeah, really... I mean, I, I'm the only scientist in my family, so it didn't come from the family side. But really in school, um, just, you know, I, I really gravitated towards that. Um, and uh, I, I think for me, it started to click really early on in elementary school. I remember just really loving that. And <laughs> I couldn't get enough of it, you know, and I would finish, you know, the exams first in the class. And I was like, I want more. And that was for me kind of like the first starting point. And then we just started to have science experiments. And I really loved that. Um, and I loved then taking the science experiments home and tinkering. And my parents really fostered kind of that um, intellectual curiosity by things that they would get me. So that brings us to today. And today you are the co-founder and the CEO of Persephone Bioscience. So I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about per the why I, I named the company Persephone and how we came um, to starting the company. So Persephone is the Greek goddess of the underworld. 
and she was lured actually by a pomegranate. She was really fascinated uh, by a pomegranate. And um, it turns out you need gut microbes to make the anti-cancer, antioxidant metabolites associated with, with pomegranates that we've all heard for thousands of years, kind of the, the properties of pomegranates. And it turns out most people don't have those gut microbes. And so Persephone was really founded um, to develop a technology platform going from human data to discover what's missing in the microbiome and to put it back. And kind of the journey that we took you know, I, I mentioned my work at, at Caltech, my PhD, and, you know, I was really always interested in becoming an entrepreneur, but I realized um, at Caltech um, when I was kind of transitioning that I really didn't know what it would take to be an entrepreneur. So I needed industry experience before starting a company, which became Persephone. And so I came down to San Diego where all of us are based, um, and I worked at a company called Genomatica. And I met my co-founder there and other folks that uh, work at Persephone. And there, um, this is an industrial biotechnology, so quite different than what I was doing at Caltech. But we were focused on engineering microbes, like what we have in our gut, um, but to produce um, chemicals or other useful products through fermentation, so a renewable process. So we were aiming to achieve and quite successful commercially at replacing chemicals made from fossil fuels, but could we make that um, renewably through plant-based feedstocks. And so after that success, you know, myself, my co-founder were ready to move on, but we really wanted to leverage this deep expertise that we had in understanding how microbes function, their metabolism, how to manipulate them through synthetic biology tools or genetic engineering tools, and how to develop scalable, commercializable technology platforms around that. And so that's why we founded Persephone was that we wanted to bring this expertise to the gut microbiome space, something that we saw so important for human health. You know, the, the gut microbiome impacts virtually every disease that we know, impacts how well cancer patients, for example, respond to treatment, and impacts how, as infants, our immune system develops. But for us, as scientists, what was surprising Given how important the gut microbiome was, we just saw there was a lack of real quantitative rigor being applied to unlocking that, right? And so Persephone was founded really to unlock the potential of the gut microbiome um, for the prevention and treatment of the disease. I realized that we talked to a lot of people who have like founded a biotech, but we've never really talked about like the first six months. And like, what does that look like when you give your notice to your job and you're like, well, I'm going to go do my own thing. Bye. Like, I mean, that's a huge leap. And I don't think we've ever really dug into what does that look like? So I think the first step for me was a few years, actually about a year and a half before uh, we decided to found Persephone. I knew I was kind of interested in that next step. And um, you know, got together with my co-founder one night, actually over beers, <laughs> and said, hey, would you be interested in starting a company? I don't know. I don't have an idea yet. <laughs> I'm thinking about it. And it was kind of through that discussion, that first discussion that I started to recognize, okay, he's interested in doing something with me. Let's start thinking about what that could look as a next step. But, you know, those first six months, um, it was, it was kind of like a honeymoon phase, really, really excited, you know, um, and a little bit scary because, um, you know, I had to take a sa no, no salary <laughs> for a while. Uh, so I had to save a lot of money um, to do that. I actually cashed out a lot of my personal savings um, to be able to, to start the company and launch it. Um, but very quickly, um, 
I think a couple of things that really helped us be successful for the rest of the journey of the company was um, kind of frameworks that we had that was accessible to us. And I know this is not accessible everywhere around the world, but down the street from us was J Labs, which is Johnson & Johnson's incubator. No strings attached. They're just a the landlord, but it gave us, you know, our initial bench space. Um, as well as just mentors that helped us really with kind of what that, that next path is. And getting into JLabs actually um, ele elevated our profile to the point that I was able to get financing, you know, from friends and family, angel investors, and then the network around Persephone started to take hold, getting the right advisors in place and mentors. Um, and then, you know, from there, um, the kind of scary path Further was like, okay, I got a little bit of money in the door. How do I get enough to actually have a proof of concept here? You know, initially we were focused on understanding how to unlock the microbiome for um, improving response to cancer drugs, namely immunotherapy drugs like checkpoint inhibitors. And um, we needed capital essentially to do our initial experiments. And within the first six months, we got into an accelerator called Y Combinator which is really famous in Silicon Valley for tech startups, but really now starting to be interested in biotech. And it was really through that that I learned to pitch to investors and brought in our initial seed financing and kind of the network of investors that we have today. But I, I would say that those first six months are absolutely critical in the rest <laughs> of, of what you, you build on, but, but really scary because you don't have a blueprint. You know, um, in the early days, you know, we didn't have any equipment <laughs> for the company. We were actually driving around in my car, picking up used equipment from wherever we could. Um, many of them broke, <laughs> so <laughs> they weren't that helpful early on. But um, it is it is scary, but finding the right, I think, mentors in the right kind of framework really helped us um, kind of to, to be successful and get over some of those key pain points. Can you tell us a little bit about how Y Combinator, which you're right, has historically been tech and now we're seeing more biotech. How did that actually really set you up? I would say it's one of the most important things that we ever did. You know, for, for me, um, and I know that many folks in, in the biotech starting companies, um, you know, in, in grad school, um, you don't learn how to communicate to investors. It's a very different proposition. You know, how I communicate my science, my story. Um, and, and Y Combinator really helped to break it down to what are the basic elements. I didn't know any of that, right? I never had met an investor, <laughs> you know. Um, that was a, a key struggle for me was that, you know, I was a scientist prior to starting this company, a bench scientist. I don't know investors, right? I know, I know Nobel laureates, <laughs> but I don't know actual investors that could help us. And so that was kind of the biggest, that was the biggest challenge but what, what, what Combinator and being in that ecosystem, first of all, um, it's just absolutely incredible, the talent and entrepreneurs. And I felt like this, the energy there was on a whole level that I had never seen, even, even at going to Caltech. Um, and, and, and just the innovation and the way they think about solving business problems was, was truly creative. And one thing about Y Combinator, beyond learning the pitch to investors and also helping us to figure out what are the right investors for us, how to do that kind of matching process, was um, 
the exposure to, um, I would say, the trials and tribulations of other entrepreneurs before us. Like we got to meet with and, and hear the story of the founding of Dropbox, for example, Reddit, many other um, very successful, um, you know, Y Combinator companies, they come back and um, the founders tell their story, you know, and there are a lot of, um, you know, rough patches many of these companies have, have had. And, you know, we got to learn about all those things. And so one of the things that I, I loved about Y Combinator was you get to see all aspects, the success, but the raw elements. And so much of the education every week that we went through was teaching us what not to do and, and how to survive. You know, don't die was kind of the biggest <laughs> thing. Do not die as a company. Do whatever you need to do to not die. And, and that really resonated. I know it resonated with my co-founder. And um, for both of us, being in that process together was really instrumental because we were both on the same page and we were both understanding of all the kind of pain points and things to not do as we started to scale the company and grow outside of Y Combinator. And that network is the network that keeps on giving. I, I still have a lot of YC investors um, and, and they keep making introductions to new investors, advisors. So that network just keeps growing as well as my, my fellow YC alum. That's fantastic. Can you give us uh, sort of the landscape of Persephone today? You went through the startup journey, you built the thing, and now where are you guys? I had always had the, the vision that eventually we could go into consumer health. Um, and microbiome is one of the really cool modalities that you could do that. You can make therapeutics and you can make consumer products. Like you could go to CVS and grab a probiotic. That is a microbiome product. Um, but I recognized in consumer health, there's just a, a lot of still education with regards to gut health. I think that's growing. But then there are a lot of products in the space that um, don't really have an impact. And, and, and just a lot of noise, I would say, in this space on what's real and what's not. And I recognized if we were really going to be credible in this space, especially consumer-facing at some point, we needed to have very solid science and, I would say, third-party buy-in, um, namely from pharma, is what we were thinking. And so, you know, for the first five years of this company, we have, were only focused in oncology. Um, and what we were been working on and, and what we'd like to achieve, which we're definitely on the path now, we've been building our platform to really decode how is the gut microbiome impacting a cancer patient's response to treatment. CAR-T, checkpoint inhibitors, um, I mean, lots of lots of clinical studies demonstrating this, but the exact mechanism and the microbes and the metabolites that engage the immune system are still unclear. And so for us, how to elucidate that was really putting on large scale observational clinical studies where we collect stool sam samples through our Poop for the Cure campaign, blood samples to look at the immune system, um, we use machine learning or AI to really understand what's damaged the microbiomes of these patients so that we could replace that with engineered microbes. So genetically engineered microbes that target those biomarkers um, so that we can enhance response to treatment. Um, and along the way, we have um, gained several partners, including Johnson & Johnson, um, where we are partnered on our study called Argonaut, 
which is the largest ever done in the United States to map the cancer gut microbiome. This is specifically in colorectal cancer, where we're looking to see how could we, through the microbiome, improve response to treatment, but also people today who are healthy, but are maybe at risk for colorectal cancer. How could I develop a therapeutic that prevents colorectal cancer is kind of the vision. Could I give somebody a pill in their 20s and they outright prevent cancer? And, you know, this program is going quite well. You know, the goal here is to have the therapeutic in the clinic in the next few years, but it's a long-term vision. You know, this the next five to 10 years of the company, tremendous data is needed. And we're only kind of at the, I, I would say we're halfway there in finding the right cancer biomarkers to develop a robust therapeutic, um, as well as kind of the genetic tools that are needed for these microbes. Um, and about a year and a half ago, um, we started having some large pharma discussions actually around consumer health. Um, and, and a group of scientists came to me actually and said that, um, you know, obviously we know the work that you're doing in oncology and you're mapping the microbiomes of cancer patients to find out what's wrong and to repair it through your therapeutics. We think your technology platform could be hugely impactful for infant gut health. And um, this was a big deal for me. Uh, I have a daughter who's two. She was six months old at the time. And, you know, first time mom, new mom, dealing with all of that. And, and you know, I, I think it struck a chord not only personally, but also professionally, because here we are, this company that's an expert in the microbiome. We've been only focused in oncology and therapeutics, but neglecting some of these areas, true unmet need right, even though that's consumer. And so, um, you know, we dug into the literature and the science for several months, and what we found out is that indeed, infant gut health is a massive global problem. It, the microbiome of infants basically impacts how well their immune system develops. So if they have the wrong microbes, their immune system develops improperly. And that's one of the reasons why we see such a huge increase in food allergies from the last few generations, um, atopic dermatitis, um, and even has implications for chronic disease, like down the road, irritable bowel disease, colorectal cancer, um, and, and other conditions like asthma and type 1 diabetes. Um, and so what we saw worldwide, there were some great data sets, but none of the data sets had suggested um, you know, how to develop a product. What are the species and specific strains of bacteria in the baby's gut that are needed? Um, and so we, we decided to launch a very large study um, in the United States called My Baby Biome, the largest ever done to map the infant microbiome to understand this better. And the reason why we have such a big problem in mainly Western um, populations is of uh, modern practices like C-section births, formula use, poor maternal diet and antibiotics are wiping these microbes out. And when we're born, we're supposed to get our microbes from our mother, but if our mother doesn't have it, we don't get it. And so we wanted to understand that specifically in the United States as well as how does this compare globally. And what we found out from our study was um, through um, very uh, aggressive, I would say, sophisticated omics analyses is that um, only about 10% of babies in the U.S. have the right microbes and at the right amounts. 
And we know what they need from West, non-Western populations like the Amish in the United States. Um, they have high levels of certain bacteria that thrive in the presence of sugars only found in breast milk. They're called human milk oligosaccharides, so milk sugar, human milk sugars. And um, what this suggests is that 90% of the U.S. population, the infant population, needs supplementation of these key bacteria. And so through our AI platform, we were able to discover the species and then the particular strains of bacteria that are needed for these babies. We isolated them, and now we are in manufacturing to um, commercialize next year an over-the-counter dietary supplement for, for infants that's composed not only of these very novel strains of probiotics, but those human milk um, sugars that I mentioned. So we call this a symbiotic. And for us, um, this is a big evolution of the company. You know, not only do we have kind of a pharma focus, but now really expanding into consumer. And that's where we see um, a huge focus for our company for the next several years, uh, building a, a pipeline, you know, with infant products first, maternal. We'd like to get into menopause, women's health, and maybe more broadly GI and other aspects that data coming from our other studies. So you mentioned AI, and I am just, as you're talking, I'm imagining a world where you're poop for the cure. You have so many samples. We expand this out to all different populations, ages, demographics, and then any question that we have going forward, we can just ask that question of your data set and think, okay, we see this problem in this one area of the country with this one population. What are they missing? What is wrong? That is my 10 year plus vision that microbiome and microbiome health is democratized in the same way as getting your blood tested. You know, when you go in to get your wow. yearly exam, they're looking at certain uh, markers in your blood. Well, why can't we do that in the gut? And I know it's going to be a huge change in even how physicians practice. There are a lot of physicians interested in this, but since we're just still trying to understand how the micro functions, there's going to be this huge gap. But that is really the vision. And um, a, a partnership I, I didn't mention um, earlier is with Kroger um, in food as medicine. So we kind of have three verticals at Persephone, um, pharma, yeah, you know, therapeutics, uh, CPG with the infant product, and then a food is me medicine vertical. And, and with Kroger, we're really trying to connect the dots between diet and the gut microbiome and overall health. You know, how can we use food as medicine? How can it change the microbiome to reduce chronic inflammation that, for example, somebody who is diabetic could get off their medicines? Could we do that with food? And that's, that's really the vision. And so I see with Cooper the Cure having all that data of the microbiome, but then somehow, you know, overlaying that with these aspects of diet. What are they taking? What kind of medicines are they taking? What kind of chronic issues do they have? So that over time with AI, we build this massive, I call it Google mapping, <laughs> Google mapping of the gut microbiome um, so that we can target specific functions on a personal level. Now, Stephanie, when you say you partner with Kroger, you mean yes, Kroger, Kroger the grocery, the grocery store, store, correct? Store. Okay. We're in the Northeast. We actually, I don't know if there's any Kroger's up here, but I'm, I grew up outside yes. of Atlanta. So lots of Kroger's. So can we talk about that partnership? Because that sounds unique to me that a large grocery store chain is getting very involved in this. And I'd love to learn more about how that came about. 
So we have been working with a side of their um, of Kroger called Kroger Health, which is really focused as food as medicine. Um, and what they have many, many pillars focused on food as medicine, and namely, you know, kind of reducing diabetes, obesity, um, even uh, cardiovascular disease in the country. Um, they've been really active with the White House in the Nutrition Council, um, helping um, improve uh, and reduce um, food insecurities. Um, how can we do, you know, work harder on that? Um, and, and with Kroger, the vision here for our work together is how can somebody essentially walk into the grocery store, pick up a microbiome kit, and start to connect the food that they bought at the grocery store um, and their diet to the microbiome? Obviously, this would all be in an easy, easy app. And eventually, through AI, getting to the point where, on a personal level, we can make a food prescription. So, like, hey, you have diabetes. I see that you're eating this, and your microbiome looks like this. But I think if you can adjust your diet in this way, we may be able to really reduce your aspects of diabetes for you, you know, reduce your A1C levels, um, potentially even your medications that you're taking. And the ultimate vision here is that uh, when you go to potentially pick up a prescription at their pharmacy, there's a food prescription there as well in the dashboard of what the pharmacist is seeing. Um, so they really want to integrate your health in terms of the grocery store, because the grocery store is a very trusted place. You know everybody that works there. It's probably your pharmacy as well. Kroger also has clinics inside of their grocery store. So you could potentially take care of a lot of your health needs all there at once. Hey there, just a quick break. I wanted to let you know that if you're listening to this podcast because you are exploring careers in biotech, which it turns out quite a few of our listeners actually are, you might be interested in the Biotech Career Coach podcast. It is brought to you by our sister company, the Collaboratory Career Hub, which is our career development community. If you would like actionable tips on job seeking and career development, that is the place for you. It is a companion podcast to our Career Coach column that we write monthly in Biospace, but we go a little more in depth and sometimes we have special workshops and all of that good stuff. So if that sounds interesting, click the link in the show notes or search for Biotech Career Coach on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Back to the show. I am really, really into food as a medicine based on my own experience. And I bet you hear this a lot, but a few years ago, I did one of the tests, the microbiome tests, because I couldn't figure out why I yeah, felt yeah. so crappy. <laughs> it was one of the um, yeah. you know, commercially available one. So it wasn't yes. very detailed, but they were able to tell me that processed gluten. So glutens that come from processed foods were, um, were going to be a problem for me. I cut those out of my diet and I felt, I feel wow. great. I feel amazing. And so I just wonder. And then when I went to Europe, I went to Portugal and there's a lot of regulations yeah. around processed foods and things there. Yeah. I feel great there. And so I wonder too, if that, is that something you're seeing in your research is some of our, our dietary patterns here in the United States is all this processed Absolutely. junk that we eat? <laughs> um, and, and it's, it's that, that's a huge part of it um, that we're seeing. And, and also the kind of impact that it's having. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about climate change and biodiversity of our planet. Our microbiome is, you know, I, I think of it as the coral reef. And, you know, Western diets and especially processed foods 
are, are actually um, starting to shift what we have in our microbiome. We're actually losing diversity. And that's why one of the reasons why the infant data set was so concerning to us is that babies, many babies are just completely missing these microbes that are even called infant microbes. They're associated with infants and they're not, they're not there at all, at zero. And um, they're just disappearing. We think they're going extinct, which is hugely concerning, but we see that in the adult population as well. And so, yeah, specific food in, in those aspects are what we're just starting to understand and how to kind of tweak that for, for example, your, your story on how that can really help you. But then we see the kind of macroscopic lens here and how that's it's becoming very detrimental. And we're now seeing it in the next generation on how that's impacting that. I know that one of the questions people are probably going to be thinking about as they're listening to you is like, well, what can I do to protect my microbiome? Like, are there any actionable things that people should be aware of? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the thing is that we've learned from the Western diet is most people's microbiome are suffering because of a lack of fiber. Um, so the best thing to do to protect your microbiome is to eat fiber. Fiber is essentially a prebiotic. Prebiotics feed the microbes or the probiotics in your gut. Um, and we just don't need enough of that. Um, whole grains, fruits and vegetables um, are all containing these prebiotics. Um, these are special fibers that essentially the gut microbes break down into food that they eat. They don't normally get absorbed by our own human cells, unlike processed sugar, right? And so um, we see that that's kind of a trade-off. And so the more fiber that you have, the more encouraging it is to maintain the right microbes in your gut. That's kind of their ammunition to keep everything um, all good in the gut. And the minute you start to shift that, no fiber, and only eat processed sugar, for example, you're really encouraging the opportunistic pathogens or the really bad bacteria to have an advantage. And over time, they can overtake the gut. Um, and we see that a lot with folks that have advanced stage cancer. Unfortunately, we see that even within infants, that they're born with the wrong microbes, those potential pathogens, inflammatory microbes. And so really to keep the balance of the gut, to keep and reduce inflammation as much as possible, fiber, fiber, fiber is what I recommend. And on top of that, I think, you know, eating um, a really well-balanced diet that includes obviously fruits and vegetables and whole grains, um, and but also fermented foods like kefir, kimchi, tempeh, sauerkraut, um, all of these kind of fermented foods are really healthy for you. They contain the natural probiotics. Um, and going to the farm, for example, to get fruits and vegetables, you know, straight from the soil, that's another way that we get our microbes as well. That's awesome. Thank you. That's really actionable for people. Can we dive in to Poop for the Cure and sort of all of the many facets of that? So, so Poop for the Cure um, came out of, um, it was really a, it's always a challenge to get poop, by the way. Um, I wish it was kind of you know, the, the poop emoji has helped us extensively in kind of demystifying <laughs> getting poop, right? It's very cute. It's cool. You know, so there's a lot of people who are all about that. Um, there's still groups that will never give us stool samples, and that's okay. But I think what happened to us, like why we came up with Poop for the Care is out of necessity to get poop. Um, so when we first started, 
Um, we, you know, the company, and uh, we had a partnership, and we still do with UC San Diego Moore's Cancer Center down the street from us. We were um, getting stool samples from advanced stage cancer patients who were receiving immunotherapy. And uh, we were using another company's stool kit uh, because, again, we just started, so we purchased their stool kit. Um, and we quickly started getting feedback from these cancer patients that, hey, I would love to be in your study, but I'm not going to give you stool samples. This kit is horrible. It's very difficult to use. It had this strap that goes on the toilet. It was messy. Um, I may not be physically able to do any of that. Um, I need something that's easy. I'm sorry. And, and, and literally a few months went by no stool samples. And at that point, I, I, I was just like, how do we move forward? To your point, I have to get stool samples to do our research. And so that's when, how Poop for the Cure was born. We wanted to, one, make it fun for people. We wanted to completely forget. You know, essentially, it was a stool sample that you had to give us. Um, we made the kit look like a Gucci handbag. Literally, <laughs> uh, it is, it's, 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 it's cardboard, but it looks like a Gucci handbag. Um, and the kit's super easy to use. It has like a bracket that goes on the, on the toilet. Um, any toilet can be used. Um, a little container, like a Tupperware container. You do your sample, close the lid, and then ship it to us. All you do is call FedEx, overnight it to Persephone, and it comes here and our scientists work on it. So it was, you know, really reinventing and making the kits super easy to use. It was just having a real call to action. We need you to help us to fight cancer. And that's how for the cure, the kind of name and the branding kind of came out. And I kid you not, after that, I mean, it's like 100% compliance. And so um, we solved that huge barrier. Um, the second barrier was then, how do we even get people to be in our studies? So initially, we had a lot of success with just organic um, word of mouth. We were featured in Scientific American. Um, I gave a TED Talk. Um, so we had a lot of just like organic communication that was bringing in Sam, you know, people to participate. And then since then, we knew, you know, that was just getting us hundreds of people, but really to come up with a robust cancer therapeutic, we need thousands. And so that's where we went to Big Pharma and said, can you help us? Can we partner? Because we need to, to work together to scale. And um, that's how we had this partnership with J&J, um, which is now, you know, about uh, almost two years in. And um, and, and things have been going really well, and the study is now scaling, and we're getting really great data um, in terms of the, the microbiome population. And so um, it, it's, it's been a, a challenge, but um, I think fixing some of these key barriers and making it easy for people um, has been really important. And I would say that in just kind of on the last point, um, patient engagement and just having a, almost a personal relationship with everybody is super important. Everybody here is valuable for research. And so many of the cancer patients, that always makes me cry when I think about it, know that they may not be alive to see our innovations, but they want to help others, right? And so, um, you know, we are so grateful to that and really respect that. And, you know, we, we send them, you know, handwritten thank you letters. Um, and whatever we can do to, to help them, um, you know, and, and 
that's just something really important to us is making sure that everybody who participates, no matter, you know, where they come from, is really, really valued for what they're doing. I mean, that's just incredible. And I think that (laughs) I'm like getting all choked up because like, yeah, that's so that's so moving. If someone wants to participate in this, do you allow volunteers still? Does it have to have to funnel through J&J? Yeah. So we have two active studies right now that people can participate. It's the J&J study, um, Argonaut. Um, So if people are interested, they can um, LinkedIn me, (laughs) uh, direct message me there, or even on the website um, to go there. And then we have the second study with Kroger right now that's actively recruiting called the Ambrosia Study. This is our food as medicine study that I mentioned. Um, Four different cohorts, and one of them receiving medical nutrition therapy through Kroger, for example. Four months in medical nutrition therapy. Um, Basically, they can go to our website, and all the clinical studies are listed there, um, and and how to sign up for them. We'll link that in the show notes for anybody who's interested in checking it out. So when you're thinking about gathering samples, how are you thinking about this in terms of the population at large and making sure that there's equitable representation in that population? And how does that then affect what you're thinking about doing with your platform? Yeah. So, you know, for us at Persephone Health Equity has always been really important since day one. You know, we want to develop medicines for everybody. And so we need to make sure that as we do our science and learn about what's wrong with microbiomes of these populations, that is really representing the population. And so um, all of our studies have that health equity lens. Our Argonaut study aims to recruit 50% 50% ethnic and racial minorities, and we're there um, in, in that study. And then our infant population had um, about 35% ethnic and racial minority, quite substantial, really reflecting the population of the U.S. And so for us, um, that's really important because when we use machine learning and AI, we want to make sure that everything gets designed um, in a way for our therapeutics and, and um, consumer products are designed in a way that could work for everybody. Um, and so having that kind of inclusion is is um, very important to us. We're hearing a lot right now about how you train big data, how you train AI, and you really have to train it on data yep. sets that are appropriate. So let's talk a little bit about the operations of your company because you have a really interesting company with your hands in a lot of different POTS slash uh, collaboration. So tell us about how you work that internally and the communication and all yeah, of the things we, that go we, into that. Yeah, we are in a big company. You know, there's uh, nine full-time employees at Persephone right now. We have a lot of consultants. Um, and that's what helps us in, in the different areas. Um, we have kind of, I would say, three specific areas at the company. Um, one is data science and computational biology. Those are all the folks doing AI. We have a microbiology team. Those are the ones studying our therapeutics, isolating them, um, developing our infant probiotics. And then we have a, a third team, which are our clinical operations that manage Boop for the Cure in all of our, our clinical studies. Um, while we are a small team, at times it is pretty challenging from a communication perspective because we are doing so many different things. We do have different programs. And now that we're getting into commercialization for our infant, um, I find myself now having to bring on a whole new set of expertise, people who have commercialized in this space. Um, and so uh, while we're small, I think communication is still fairly fluid, but I, I am... 
um, surprised um, and something that we, we have to grow better and, and learn more on is sometimes um, some of the team feel siloed because they don't know everything that's going on. And um, sometimes we make a public announcement and they said, I didn't know you were doing that. <laughs> so I was like, oh, <laughs> I had said that to you, but I guess they didn't know that we finished a deal, for example. And so sometimes I need to be maybe better about communication. So that's definitely something as we scale and grow, which we, we aim to do in the next year. Um, how do I really minimize that? How do I continue to have that deep, you know, communication with everybody, make sure everything is transparent to the team? I think that's definitely going to be a challenge moving forward for us. It's hard to believe that your company is, yeah. what, five years yeah. old? I mean, that's a rapid amount of innovation in a short period of time. It's incredible. Do you mind if I ask what, so you said you're leveraging a lot of consultants. What are you using consultants for? So I would say there are kind of two two types of consultants that we've been leveraging. One is really on the business side, you know, for, for our go-to-market strategies. Initially, we leveraged a lot of them to help us in oncology and how what, what does that look like? What does the clinical trial landscape look like? And then now moving to the consumer, well, what's the path to market? Are we going direct to consumer? Do we want to think about retail? How, how do we do that? And all the market analysis that goes along with that, as well as branding and marketing. Um, and then the other set of consultants we have are technical in nature. High, you know, real, real de deep experts, um, like those that are um, uh, immuno-oncologists to now on the infant front, folks that are experts in manufacturing, um, how clinical trial design for pediatrics, kind of you name it. So I would say those are kind of the, the key buckets that we've employed um, uh, consultants for. Yeah, we're hearing a lot of that from companies recently, which is great. I think there's been a big shift because 10 years ago when I started this company, we weren't seeing startups use consultants in the same way we are today. And I think some of that came from the pandemic and the decentralization and people realizing, you know what, I actually really enjoy not working for one company. I love spreading my expertise around and being that yeah. fractional expert. And I think then companies accepted that because yes. we were all remote yeah. for a while. And I hope that that really helps small companies to grow more efficiently because I do remember in the early days of my company watching companies say, well, we need this expertise, so we're going to hire yeah. this really expensive person in-house. And that just burns through your budget. Exactly. Burns your and runway. I think what we have noticed is that's why we've stayed really lean is that we have this need yeah. for core expertise. We're always going to need them. 100%, mm -hmm. right? But then some of these um, advisors and consultants, you need them for three months, for example, right? As right. we figure out something in our roadmap and some, some are multi-year um, consultants and some have been for just six months because then we out kind of grew what their expertise was. And it lets you test yep. different things too. Like, do you want to go direct to consumer? That is a really good question to ask. And maybe eventually you hire a team that does that exactly. because that is the direction. Yeah. How different is Persephone today than what you envisioned when you were starting this, you know, those first early days? It's just slightly different. It's not as different as I thought it would be, to be honest. Um, I thought we would be in the clinic for oncology. So that's kind of the surprising thing for me. It just has taken a long time. And the, the pandemic really had an impact because we couldn't get stool samples from anybody. And then it took a while once we did start getting back to the lab. You know, we do a lot of sequencing. 
And at the time, still, um, things got better uh, this year. It was still impacted last year on all the reagents were being used for that. And so we couldn't actually get sequencing reagents for a while. We're being backordered. And then the cost went up like 25%, like substantially. So it like killed our budget at the same time we couldn't get things done. So it was it was kind of tricky, but we, we eventually navigated through it. So that was a good two years of kind of uh, a gap in what we could do. And so we had to kind of get creative um, on, on that front. So I, I would say it, it's just it's a little bit different in the sense that I, we may not have been in the clinic or as far as long as I thought we would have been in therapeutics, but now we are, our technology platform has been fully built and we're moving very quickly. Um, and we are in consumer, which I always thought we would be. I just didn't know when. Where do you see yourself in the next 10 years or the company? Because I see you still at Persephone for sure. But like, what mm -hmm. what are you doing then? I think at that point, you know, definitely have grown the company extensively, have multiple products in the clinic, hopefully an FDA approval by then on the consumer side, being really well established and becoming actually a household name in consumer health um, with the infant, maternal, menopause and many other products that I see in the next decade. I think for me personally is really growing into this role um, and being able to, to grow the company, um, have... Um, you know, really increase revenue and, and returns um, to the company to continue to grow and um, make an impact on, on society. When you have free time, which I assume is limited, um, what books do you like to read? We are make we have a big list of all of the books that have been recommended by everyone who's come on the podcast. Yeah, well, I'm becoming a business nerd, so um, <laughs> I'm trying to understand how to run the company and build the company. I've been reading a lot. <laughs> of Jim Collins's books, From Good to Great to yeah. Built to Last. Those are actually what I've been, and I've been re-listening. I actually have to, you know, I don't have time to actually read because i listening in the dark, so <laughs> audiobooks. But um, I, I replay them. I just not, I don't only listen to them once, but I replay them. And on the microbiome side, one of my favorite books to, to recommend is Missing Microbes by Martin Blazer. Um, and, and kind of the pandemic of antibiotics and what that has done to the microbiome and, uh, and, and causing obesity and, and other aspects. So definitely an interesting read. But um, Jim Collins, I'm, I'm really, <laughs> I, I've been really, you know, get, digging in, into those books lately. Awesome. We'll add them to the list. Yeah. So we are going to link in all the good things into our show notes, um, your website, um, your link. In touch um, with I think you. those are the, the, the best ways. I check my LinkedIn. So <laughs> that is that is that is a great way um, to, to connect. Perfect. Well, this was so uh, we could talk and talk and talk, but this was so great. And maybe we should plan a part two once you are, you know, have rolled out something, whether it's this Kroger relationship or, you know, or a therapeutic. I would Absolutely. love to reconnect. Awesome. Thank you so much, Thank Stephanie. You. This really was great. Building Biotechs is brought to you by Recrudomics Consulting. To find out more about Recrudomics Consulting and how our fractional talent management consulting services are helping biotech and life sciences companies grow more efficiently and retain employees, visit www.recrudomics.com. And then make sure to search for Building Biotechs, a podcast by Recrudomics in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Recrudomics Consulting, thanks for listening.